everyone to episode 82 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernicke. My special guest this week is Joanne Terry. So Joe is going to share her story uh, regarding her husband Chip and her family. Chip was a retired Covington Fire Department Assistant Chief. Uh, he retired in 2012 and in 2017 he ended up committing suicide. So this story is going to be from her perspective and She's going to talk about Chip, share his story, her story, but at the same time share about how she's now paying it forward with the Chip Terry Fund and kind of go into what that's about too. So without further ado, let's bring Joe in. All right. Welcome to the show, Joanne Terry. How are you? I'm fine, Jim. How are you? I'm doing well. I got my nap in. I got my lunch in. I got my water. I went to the bathroom. I'm good to go. We're, I'm ready to do this. <laughs> I am too. All right. Well, let's just kind of jump into it. I, how about you tell me uh, about a little ditty about Chip and Joanne? Ah, this is a great one. Um, Chip and I were the original Chip and Joe. You know, when we got married in 86, we just started buying property and fixing it up. Um, we haven't made the sort of money the other Chip and Joe have made, but, um, you know, we've been through probably nine pieces of property together, and uh, it's just something we both enjoyed doing. Instead of doing this in, instead of doing this in Waco, you were doing this in Covington. Northern Kentucky, yep. We hit a couple different places, and uh, yeah, loved every bit of it. Okay. Was, uh, Was Chip already on the job? When you first met him? No, I met him. He, um, we were teenagers and he was working for Coke, believe it or not, as a driver. And um, I was in college and we met at Fibber McGee's in Cincinnati up on UC's campus. And uh, he claims it was because I was so good at quarters. I was beating everybody at the, at the table at a game of quarters. And um and he asked me out and we dated and eventually got married. We were very young when we, when we got married. I was 22 going on 23 and he was 24. So yeah, lifelong friends, really. We grew up together. That's awesome. So when did he first then kind of get into the business, if you will? The fire business, the medic business, all that stuff. We were married in 86. So in 85, he finished up his medic license and was working as a paramedic and at that time in northern kentucky anyway medics were not part of the fire service so they were hired independently and he was working 24 hours as a medic um, at the time he got the call from covington took the job at covington and was working 24 as a medic and then followed up with 24 more at the fire department and chief brown at covington at the time told him you got to choose you can't do both so he picked the fire service um, and you know the rest is history stayed there for 26 plus years so he had probably uh 28 years in the in the first responder world altogether. a few more as volunteer before he got hired full-time and so he he ended up working his way up all the way to being the chief he was an assistant chief he was not the the chief but he made it to the administrative level of assistant chief very nice. Right. Mm-hmm. And along the way, you guys had a bunch of kids, right? 
Yeah, we've got six. We have our four biological children and I always wanted to adopt. Um, and he just kept postponing it. And after the earthquake in 2010 in Haiti, you know, I was still on the adoption bandwagon. We had our older four and, um, you know, it, it just took those vi visuals, those images of all the devastation in Haiti for him to say, if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it there. So we did, and we brought home our two youngest daughters, um, Judy and Taimi, and rounded our family out at six. It's a full house. It is. It was a great. It was a great life. That's awesome. So, kind of going back to this job, could you tell? And I know this is now all in retrospect, but was Chip bringing anything from work home? Like, was his his work cup spilling over into the personal life? And and I know you guys also had a business together. Um, he was he was go 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 all the all the time. I I, I know the the kind that. The, just really can't relax he never he never could i mean so i can't i can't say that that was a warning sign for us because we you know with six kids and owning a physical therapy practice we were never able to um just sit you know we had to schedule date days and we had to schedule time together um so yeah he was always on the go um and he brought it home. I mean, I knew when he was experiencing those tough runs, um, it, it wasn't hidden. I mean, he would call me. And I remember particularly in the first year at Covington, he had two SIDS deaths and a fatal heart attack all in one day, you know, in his first career, first year of his career. And I remember him saying, I don't know if I could do this way back then. And, um, you know, maybe he got in a rhythm. I don't know what it was. But, you know, when he'd have a fatality or there was a horrible run, he would tell us about it. I didn't get gory details. You know, like most firefighters, he kind of protected us from that piece. But um, I knew of the runs he spoke of in his retirement. I knew each and every one of those intimately because they were things that happened early on in his career that he would bring up periodically you know that's a that's a good segue joe um talking about his retirement speech um I, i've seen just clips of it not the whole thing but this is 2012 right is when he retired yes and he was very vocal back then about some of these calls and it's i mean i think right now uh, somebody talking and, and saying what he said would be um groundbreaking like it's still not the norm but he was i mean this is you know nine years ago now when he did this um what were your thoughts when he actually incorporated that into his retirement speech you know i you kind of have to set the stage because back in 2012 there was a lot of stuff going on within different departments especially in covington and kentucky with our pension plan for the retirees and he was passionate about what the first responder received, they earned, you know, they, so there were brownouts, they were talking about reduction of um, 
employees. They, they weren't filling spots. They were doing some things that he was very dissatisfied with in the city to save money. And so his, the beginning of his speech is really talking about some of that stuff. And it went on to become that impassioned, you know, minute 30 that a lot of people have seen where, you know, he breaks down and it shocked me. He was such a private individual that he was able to let his emotions get the best of him right then and there. But again, it was 2012 and, you know, all of us were sitting there um, at the retirement speech and including many of his peers and nobody, nobody said, Hey, maybe he needs some help. Nobody, including me. So I use that as a huge piece of the training I do because he's speaking from beyond the grave still. And it's a, a we're witnessing the pain that a lot of first responders are holding in and hiding because of the stigma associated with it. That was the incredible thing is he was forthcoming with it. He just put it all out there. I mean, it's his last day, last speech. Here I go. Here it comes. I mean, it was, it, it was incredible to watch and listen to. Did, and did you have any idea that he was going to go there? Did he give you? No. And, and, and knowing my husband, I don't think he knew he was going there. Um, you know, his, his background, his first degree was in music performance. So this guy was like, he loved public speaking. He loved to teach. He loved to be in front of an audience. So it wasn't unusual for him to ad lib and just go with things. Um, what was unusual was for him to really show that emotional part. No, that's, and I wonder if that's just kind of being part of the job, even the, the mindset back then is to, to be tough. And especially when you're in that position to, you know, not show weakness. I don't know if that, you know, I'm just assuming, I'm guessing, I don't know if that played part of that as well. What do you think? Yeah, he was one that never wanted to be seen as weak or cowardly. I mean, like a lot of first responders, he worked out regularly. And some of his workouts were painful. I mean, literally drove himself to the ground, six mile runs and push-ups and, you know, whatever he had to do to really just take his body to the edge. And um, in hindsight, what I think that is, is his way of, of um, feeling something maybe other than what was in his head and pushing his body to the limits so that he could finally sleep. Um, and, and I think that that's probably a very common behavior for a lot of first responders. So that's a, another great segue. You're just kind of lining them up for me today. I appreciate that. I had to make your job easier. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, he retires from the job. I know he doesn't stop working. He still is in all sorts of different things. He goes into the board up. You're still doing, you know, your business still all over the place. At what point did he have start having difficulty really sleeping? Was that already, was he still on the job or was it even when, when he retired? Um, I think the sleep 
issues worsened after he retired. He was never a good sleeper. Um, I think he always used alcohol to help him fall asleep. Not every day, but, um, you know, when you run in that crazy schedule, I don't think there's a first responder out there that says they sleep well. So I don't, I didn't take the sleep issues as a sign of PTSD, but I will say that by, you know, 2015, as I thought back through our lives, I think things were starting to become more noticeable. Like if I had been aware of what PTSD was, I think in 2015, I would have been able to start to see some of the um, true signs and symptoms evolving and sleep was one of those then. That's when he started um, saying he was gonna sleep on the couch rather than come to bed and you know toss and turn. He just avoided the bedroom um, or he'd sleep at his desk chair and, and catnap throughout the day and not be tired at night. So I would say by 2015, so it was after he retired that I really began to see some changes with the sleep patterns. Did, did the drinking also change? Um, like I tell people, we, we were young when we got married, both from big Catholic families. So drinking was something we kind of grew up with. While I was always able to, um, I shouldn't say always, but I knew my limits, you know, Chip, Chip was the one that always exceeded it. And I, I would be the DD or we'd, you know, I, I had to be the reliable one most of the time. Um, living in the, in, the, in the city and being able to walk so many places helped us, you know, avoid situations that were, you know, really bad. Um, but yeah, the drinking escalated, but even living with him, I didn't realize how much he was hiding from me until after he was gone. So that meaning we had a liquor cabinet and I didn't drink liquor. I was just, you know, a, a couple of beers every once in a while. And when I went through the liquor cabinet after he passed away, I found most of these bottles were empty. He just didn't throw them away. And that's when I realized, yeah, alcohol, he was really trying to self-medicate with alcohol. At some point, you ended up getting a call from him and he was at uh, the University of Cincinnati Hospital. Could you kind of go into that call and, you know, what happened before to get him there and just kind of fill me in? So I usually, you know, kind of talk about um, prior to that, I, I, I knew our relationship was in trouble. Um, I was starting to feel very detached, um, a lot of anger on my part um, from some of the things that he was doing, like the withdrawal that people talk about with PTSD. And we were at a 4th of July party. So 4th of July in 2017 was on a Sunday and um, he had had too much to drink. And when we got home, he said, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, um, I'm not coming to bed. I'm gonna sleep on the couch. I'm on call for board up. And he was in no condition to go on a call at all. Um, so, you know, I just said, okay, and went to bed, not expecting him to go anywhere. But the next morning I had to work and I was a PT. And by then we had sold the practice 
and I was the only PT that the hospital had for our outpatient clinic that day um, because of the holiday. So I went in and I got a call from him at seven in the morning. And um, he said, I'm okay. I need you to know I'm all right, but I was having suicidal thoughts last night. So I drove myself to UC and, um, you know, at that point he was already admitted and he said, you can't leave. Uh, you can't get here. I'll be in touch. So it's kind of how it was sprung on me, like in the middle of the day at a, on a work day, you know, oh, by the way, I won't be home tonight. So obviously it, it rocks your world, um, but I knew he was safe at least at that point. So he was then transferred to an inpatient facility that day. And I saw him that night for the first time um, after he had had those thoughts. And I will tell you that that brokenness that you see in their eyes it's just, it's, it's just like a shell of a man. You know, Chip was 6'2", 6'3", now 185, 190-pound lean guy with the most beautiful blue eyes. And there he is, this shell of a guy in scrubs and, you know, tennis sh or shoes with no shoestrings in this horrible little cell of a room. And it's just crushing just crushing to see that kind of pain on someone's face. The embarrassment, um, the hopelessness, I had never seen anything like it, especially with someone that was so intimate with me. But that's where it started. And so from there, um, we met together with a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist, you know, pretty much gave me hope. His words to me, to Chip, were, um, you know, it's very rare that men your age, he was 56, 57, 56 going on 57, rare that men your age stop themselves um, from committing suicide. And he told, told us, you have a guardian angel. And I remember him saying that and being the little Catholic girl, that was like, holy cow, we're blessed. You know, here I sit, but he gave me a lot of hope. And at that time, Chip said, doc, I've been reading a lot about it. Um, I think I have PTSD. And this isn't just something that happens to our vets. You know, first responders are also subject to this disorder and, and, I mean, right then and there, he hand-delivered his own diagnosis. Unfortunately, no one really took that seriously. Um, from what I understand now, he was never, it's not documented in any of his medical records, even though I heard him talk about it more than once. Um, and nobody assessed him for the PTSD for any, on any kind of trauma level. You know, and at that time, unbeknownst to me, we had the UC Stress Center. We had the IAFF Center of Excellence. Um, there were other trauma facilities around, but 
either the clinicians didn't know about it or they just didn't suspect that that's what he was dealing with. So he was placed in an IOP, an intense outpatient program for substance abuse. And he did everything they asked. You know, he stopped drinking cold turkey. He took his antidepressants. He did his IOP from six to nine, Monday through Thursday, completed the whole program. We did family sessions, you know, um, through it all, he seemed like he was doing well. They Short. just, go ahead, sorry. No, it wasn't long after he finished his program that we celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary. And um, within, I don't know, less than two weeks after he graduated, he went ahead and committed suicide. So you were under the impression that he was on the right, doing the right things, doing everything they've asked him to do. He's, he's getting better. Everything is getting better. Yeah, I mean, he and I took a trip during that time to Charleston, South Carolina, just the two of us. We had a, a great long weekend. Um, his personality was different. You know, he wasn't as argumentative and, and um, withdrawn. He was participating in family things with the kids. Um, you know, he stopped drinking. I just, I just thought we were on the right path. I, I put too much confidence in the system and the system completely let us down. He, it seems like he did all these different items that I asked him to do, but they never addressed the root of the problem. Fair to yeah. say? Fair to say. Completely fair to say. I believe with uh, with certainty now that the substance abuse was a a way of him trying to cope with what he always called the demons in his head, and those were those runs that he was unable to forget and shake. And um, yeah, I, I, I believe we were completely let down. Because of everything you've kind of taken these lessons you've learned and tried to kind of pay it forward to make sure that the same thing that happened to chip and your family doesn't happen to anybody else and that's really where the chip terry fund the foundation kind of comes into play right yes so you know when when you're when you're in that much grief and you're looking for answers, you know, the first thing I did was start to Google, you know, I did my Google search and I found books, some great resources. Um, that's how I found out about the IFF Center of Excellence, the UC Stress Center very quickly. So I started reading and learning and, and I thought, well, I can't be the only one that is unaware of this situation with first responders. And so we quickly formed the nonprofit, the Chip Terry Fund for First Responders, with the intention of doing an educational seminar. And the first one was um, on the anniversary of his death a year later. And the life learning 
Center in Covington, Kentucky hosted it for me. Covington Fire Department helped me throw it together. Um, we brought in speakers from all over the country and we presented the information that we thought we needed to share. And it was a six hour seminar, question and answers, CHIPS video was played, clinicians were welcome. Um, it was widely received and you know, I thought one and done, you know, I thought this is it. I'm gonna share and then somebody else can, can move forward with this. Unfortunately, right after we put on that event, very quickly back to back, I had two first responders reach out who were suicidal. And the first one, um, it was actually his wife who reached out to me and said, I can't take this anymore. He was also at an inpatient facility for suicidal thoughts. And I said, well, I, I know where I'd send Chip if I had the opportunity now. And that was the IFS Center of Excellence. And she said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask, but he refused to go. And so I said, well, ask him if he'll go if I go with him. And he said, yes, it totally shocked me. So I took the money that we had earned from the seminar and I paid for our flights. And, um, you know, the first thing I noticed when I met this gentleman at the airport was the same brokenness in his eyes, the same shared hopelessness that Chip had had. And it, it, we, here we are going through, you know, TSA checkpoints and we're crying and, and just sobbing about this situation that he's in and that his family is living with and what I had just gone through. You know, obviously Chip's death was still very fresh. And so it was just, it was crazy. These two nutbags in the airport crying. And we get on the airplane and we're seated and he proceeds to tell me, um, I forgot to tell you this, but I have a fear of flying. And I was like, are you kidding now? You know, we can't even go back there and get you a drink to settle us both down. I said, we're, we're buckled up. But, um, you know, we continued to talk the whole flight and this guy got the help he needed and he's still doing great. And another one called and another one called and it seemed like there was a need for us to, to work on that end of it as well as the educational end. So now really my, my true passion is just one-on-one -on -one with those first responders, trying to make them understand what happens to their family when they go forward and accomplish suicide and the pain they leave behind, but also that this isn't something that's permanent. You know, these changes that occur within their brain don't have to leave them so broken. There are ways to fix it and we can, clinicians, not me, but there are ways to help this brain heal so that they can live a life that's um, productive and happy and and fruitful with their family and their relationships all intact. Let me I'll put you on the spot. For those that may be listening to this and struggling or having issues, you're on the other side of this. What would you tell those individuals about the aftermath of what you're left with or left without? Oh, it's crushing. It's crushing. I have six kids who don't have their dad. I have two grandbabies who will never know their grandfather. 
um, I have a community of first responders that are still living with the pain of his suicide. You know, thought that I could have helped or, you know, I was so close to him. How did I miss this? Um, it's just, it's the ripple effect is enormous and it'll never go away. You know, I've done my, my therapy, I've done my EMDR, but it's still, you know, a huge gap, a huge hole that'll never be filled. And the sadness and the brokenness they leave behind is probably not what they're living with, but to understand that your brokenness as a first responder, your, your symptoms can get better with treatment it would it would have it would have held my family intact. We would still be together. We would still have all of the things we enjoyed before. But you would be healthy. And you know, I I, I sometimes read part of his his suicide note where he talks about how sometimes mental health is is a terminal diagnosis. Mental health disorders like PTSD. And I, I tell this story all the time. Chip was one that would admit his faults. He would admit when he was wrong. And I always say this was one thing he had wrong. He had it really wrong because I've seen the other side now. I've seen the ones that have gotten help that are productive and happy. And I, I, I just can't, I just can't watch and let another first responder reach out to me and not beg them to try to get the right treatment. They're, they're out there. Those clinicians are out there. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I know that wasn't an easy question, so I appreciate that. Where, where can uh, all the listeners find out more about you, find out more about the Chip Terry Fund? We are on Facebook. Um, we have a website. We just recently finished a um, training video. The state of Kentucky has approved our one-hour training for training hours for um, medics and firefighters that we are hoping to share now with departments for part of their training. Um, so the Chip Terry Fund for first responders, we're, we're, we're out there. We're trying to make a difference. Um, so yeah, look us up, send us messages. I, I, I never turn a first responder away or a spouse because this is not just a first responder problem. The spouses are living through a lot at the same time it, 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 and it's breaking families apart. You know, it's part of the reason why our first responders divorce rate is so high. At some point, these spouses can't take it anymore um and and there are there are those that i've talked with that i don't fault them at all you know you can't you can't live like this ultimately it's the first responders choice they have to want and seek the help um once they do that then i think we can start repairing those relationships that are being damaged as well no absolutely I can't thank you enough for joining me on the show and, and telling your story. Um, and also beyond that, just everything you're doing uh, with the fund, um, going and checking out these places, making sure they're on the up and up and 
would be something that you'd be comfortable sending chip to um, kind of, you know, ver verifying them, I guess, because there are more and more treatment centers that are coming online for first responders, but we still need to make sure that they're doing the right thing for us. Right. Well, I think because of my personal experience, it's very hard for me to recommend a place or a person unless I know without a doubt that they've been doing the right stuff. So I'm very protective of my first responders that reach out to me. And I certainly wouldn't send any of them somewhere that I would not send CHIP. That's perfect. Exactly. So uh, one more time, Joanne Terry, Joe for short. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, wow. Uh, if anybody needs any help, be sure to reach out to her. She's got a lot of great resources and she's been there. So she can definitely help. Yeah. Thanks, Jim, for helping us spread the message and doing what you do. We have all these avenues out there and you're one of them. I appreciate you reaching out to me to help me get through this. Of course. Well, thanks, Allison, for putting us together. Yeah. I'll give her a little plug at Pinpoint Behavioral. So uh, with that, I'll let you continue your day. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye.